0: Jesus, who was literally the, um, the one who came to save. So here's what I'll do. I'll start by saying um, what I did last week, that um, many of us in here did not uh, grow up in the church. If we did grow up in the church, it did not mean that we did not have questions. And even after we left, our homes and went to, a, um, inter- interacted with people who themselves did not grow up in the church, then what happened was, is that you began to ask questions that maybe you didn't ask um, prior to uh, just your interaction with your own family. So just to tell you a little bit more about my story, we're talking uh, today about, is Jesus really God? is Jesus really God? Um, As I talked about last week, I had an experience where I did not grow up in the church and I was uh, from a sort of relativistic or pluralistic home. Um, Beyond that though, um, I had uh, most of my friends who were uh, either atheist or they were what I would characterize as uh, hypocritical Christians, or um, they were people who, uh, or actually a lot of my best friends uh, growing up who I spent the majority of my time were, in fact, Muslim. And so uh, I was surrounded by sort of these intersecting and uh, many times competing Ideas of faith and um, what it meant to um, believe in God, what it meant to serve God, what it meant to uh, actually be in the uh, purposes of God. So, with that in mind, I think that some of the things that we have to consider are um, is there evidence for understanding Jesus as God? Jesus is not just a good teacher, Jesus is not just. Um, a prophet, Jesus is not just a moral guide, but is Jesus in fact God? Because what we come together to do on a weekly basis is we come together to worship, right? Can everybody say amen to that? Okay, we come together to worship. And if we're coming together to worship, we're coming together to worship someone who is more than just a man. We're coming together to worship someone who's more than just a wise counselor or a uh, good teacher. We're coming to, um, to worship someone who in fact is laying claims to divinity. And so whenever we uh, actually talk about Jesus here and whenever we uh, talk about the worship of Jesus, we've got to understand why we're in fact saying that he is God, why we're saying that he is uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we're going to go through this today. I'll go ahead and say um, in advance that a lot of what we're going to go through today will be on the website. Okay. Uh, There's a lot that I'm going to cover in terms of scriptural references and also um, uh, quotes. Uh, And the they're, catalog- they're going to be cataloged and condensed for you on the website. Later in the uh, week, we p- actually put it up on the web so that as you're studying, as you're going through your discussion groups, you have a reference to pull from, okay? So don't, uh, don't get overwhelmed if you're not able to uh, collect it all today. It will be there for you on the web, but we are going to go through the reasons to believe that Jesus is God, uh, <clears throat> going through multiple parts. But um, what we will claim is that, again, Jesus is God in the flesh who came to restore our relationship with him. And we know this, uh, for several reasons. So today, if you uh, have a Bible, you can um, start with me in Genesis chapter one. And we're, I'm going to start with why do we know that Jesus is in fact God? It's because, uh, number one, there's something called the Trinity. The Trinity is actually a theme that, um, existed throughout the Bible, uh, throughout the Judeo, uh, Judeo Christian scripture. It was actually something that was an ongoing theme. And it was something that very specifically was, uh, there to help people understand the nature of God throughout history. And when we look at the very beginnings, Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Okay. Whenever God himself is in creation, he's starting at the beginning and he's saying in the plural, God saying, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his singular own image in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So even at the very beginning, we know that the Trinity from the, uh, the, the, it's not a term that was uh, specifically characterized um, in scripture. The term Trinity was not uh, utilized in scripture, but the theme of the Trinity was throughout scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. We see that God starting off saying, I'm one God in three persons, expressing myself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let God, he said, let us make man in our image. And then God singular said, he made them. Okay. And when we see going on into John chapter one, we see that God's talking um, specifically giving testimony about Jesus, the son. And whenever John, the uh, apostle, who was a follower of Jesus, starts to write the new um, Testament account of Jesus, his life, miracles, death, burial, and resurrection, he starts it off in this way. He says, in the beginning was the word. So just as Genesis was a beginning of all creation and all mankind, we see that in John, it's an introduction to the work of Jesus. And he says, in that same beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. You skip down to verse 14 and it said, and the word became flesh that literally this God who was the word, he became flesh, meaning he took on flesh and he made his dwelling amongst us. So just as Genesis talks about in the beginning that God made mankind in his image, in John, the gospel of John, we see that this word, the creator of all mankind, actually became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us and walked amongst us as the Trinitarian son of God. So what we see is very specifically, very specifically that there wasn't just Jesus Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's prophecy. Prophecy. And in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, written at least 1,000 years before Jesus lived, we see that there was a prediction of Jesus' life and reign. There was a prediction of Jesus' life and reign, and in Psalm chapter 2, it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. He who sits in in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance so when we start with the premise of God as the only deity the only one through the only creator the only one by which all, all of human existence the universe and all that we see around us came into existence we also see that the God who made all of heaven and earth everything that we see around us is going to be ruler over it all as well And in this Psalm, he's literally saying that I've established my king in Zion, and it's going to be my begotten son who I give the authority of the nations to. Now, we know that that wasn't just something that was predicted about the one that God would give his um, authority to, but it's also what Jesus said about himself in fulfillment of prophecy, even when Jesus was on trial for his life. When you look at uh, what Jesus was crucified for, many times people, Ask the question, why would a good man be crucified? Why would somebody who was sinless actually have to go to the cross? Well, we know that spiritually he went to the cross for our punishment, our shame, our sin against the holy God. But as far as the human community, what was the human's charge against him? And when you look at the charge against Jesus the Christ in the midst of the Roman empire, the charge against him hanging over the cross was, here hangs the king of the Jews. Here hangs in his identity, the one who is laying claim to rulership not only over the jews but over all heaven and earth itself and when jesus was on trial in matthew 22 verses 41 through 46 he said this now while the pharisees were gathered jesus asked them this question sorry this was before his trial saying what do you think about the christ whose son is he they said to him, the son of David, and David was sort of the prototype or the, uh, the, the person foreshadowing the messianic king, the one who would come and rule over all the nations, and he said, listen, this king who was coming, this Jesus, he said, he said, that my Lord said to, excuse me, Ooh. all right, here, pray for Alan now, okay, Woo. yeah, just go, yeah, just stretch it out, <laughs> God bless you. God bless you. My wife is in bed today. She's like dealing with her flu light symptoms, and I'm going to join her right after this. God bless you. Okay, so he said, the son of David said, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, meaning that King David, hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, he was going to be the natural father of Jesus the Christ. He was going to be the ancestor of Jesus. By natural lineage, he was going to be the one who produced Jesus in the Jewish line. However, he's saying in advance by the Spirit of God, he said, my Lord... My Lord said to my Lord, he's basically, though he's going to be his ancestor, he's going, Jesus is going to be his descendant. Basically, Jesus is called the Lord of King David himself. And Jesus is asking, how is he calling me Lord if he's in fact my father? He's instead saying, I am not only... I'm not only his father, but Jesus is actually the one who preceded David in the line. Now, in Isaiah, who was a prophet 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, we see that Jesus was spoken about. When you are thinking about the declarations that God made about Jesus, the Son, you can go back to some of our previous series, sermon series, where we are actually having declarations about the Son of God. And one of them was in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years before jesus showed up on the scene he said this for to us a child is born speaking of the messiah who would come to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end On the throne of David, who we just mentioned, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So, meaning that God himself was going to give kingship to this Messiah who was coming. And this child who was to be born, as we know in Isaiah, was going to be born of a virgin, would actually not just be called a prophet, not just a good teacher, not just a wise counselor, but in fact, he would be called God. He would be called God. And this is important to understand in the context of the culture that he's writing to, the culture of who he's prophesying to, the culture of who he's speaking to, because this was a staunchly monotheistic culture. This was not a culture that was full of pluralism. It was not a culture that was full of relativism. Instead, it was a culture that was full of a singularity of thought, a singularity of focus, where they were saying, there's one God, and he will share his glory with no other. But this God who will share his glory with no other, he was go, you are going to be able to look to him and he would like basically produce this son who was going to be born in the flesh and this son born in the flesh would be called Mighty God. Not only that he spoke of, not only his identity, but his work in Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6. It said that he was pierced for our transgressions he would be crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that would bring us peace and with his wounds we would be healed All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so what we would see is that through prophecy, there would be a prediction of this Jesus, his sufferings, and the reconciliation through his sufferings that it enabled. But it would start because of his sinless life. It would start because of his identity as God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This son would accomplish the work providing reconciliation to almighty God. Okay. Now in the midst of that, we see that there is, there is not only a prediction about what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he would do, but in the Babylonian exile, there was a prophet named Daniel. How many, how many people have ever read the book of Daniel before? Okay. Daniel is a great uh, book to read. Uh, We've done a series on it before, but it's a great book to read specifically if you're trying to understand how to live for Jesus in the midst of a pluralistic culture, how to live for God in the midst of a culture that doesn't honor God as the only ruler, only judge, and only king. But Daniel was a statesman. He was also a prophet um, during that time, and one of the most significant Old Testament prophecies that we have about this God who had come to to save the world was in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And he began with a reference about a man. Called the Son of Man. How many people have ever heard of the Son of Man before? Okay? If you've ever read the Gospels before, you see that it's Jesus' most common identification of himself, right? You see him constantly talking about himself as the Son of Man. Well, why he's referencing himself as the Son of Man is because he's directly linking himself back to a monotheistic Jewish prophecy that came through the prophet Daniel talking about God. God who would come and walk amongst humanity to save it. And in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, we, we specifically are looking at this in the NIV. He said this, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. The Ancient of Days was a common reference to God who was eternal, right? The Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. Worshipped him. They didn't just pay him homage, but they worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not just like the presidency, which you know after every after every four years we get another chance, right? It's like instead we we specifically see that his his rulership is an everlasting one that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So whenever God is in this monotheistic culture predicting this Son of Man who would come, He's setting up for the Jewish people and really for the rest of the world and understanding that one who identifies himself as a son of man would in fact not just be a good teacher, a wise counselor, but almighty God himself. Now Jesus, whenever he began to teach, he accepted the messianic title of son of man, claiming equality with God. Because in a monotheistic culture, you have to understand that they did not allow worship of anybody except God, right? Meaning that there were actually laws that would put to death people who blasphemed. There would be laws that actually got rid of people who tried to ascribe deity to anyone except the one true God. But Jesus in this monotheistic culture comes and specifically attaches himself to this name of the son of man and as i tried to mention before with his trial it said in matthew chapter 26 verses 63 through 65 when jesus was before the sanhedrin after performing signs wonders and miracles in the midst of a community that did not recognize him always as the son of god as god in the flesh it said he was being accused of multiple things but when he was accused he remained silent And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. Tell us if you are this messianic figure. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And a lot of times with Scripture, what we have to do is we have to make sure to hear things as the original hearers of these instances heard it. A lot of times what we do is we project, right? When you're reading the Bible, you project your common understanding of words, vocabulary, instances, human circumstances onto what you are reading on the pages of Scripture. But to understand it properly, you have to hear it as they heard it. And so you have to ask yourself the question before the Jewish ruling council, why, in fact, were they claiming blasphemy? Why were they actually saying Jesus needs to be put to death? Not because of anything that he's done, because nobody could could, uh, accuse him of any wrongdoing. Nobody, rather, could prove him of any wrongdoing. But instead, what they put him to death for was an accusation of blasphemy. And it was a direct attachment to this designation of the Son of Man who had come on the clouds of heaven... To rule the nations not just as another good teacher but as god in the flesh is this making sense to you to everybody because if not i'm gonna back it up this is important jesus was very self-aware he had a fantastic sense of self-awareness what you hope for all of your family and friends is a sense of self-awareness amen okay, right? <laughs> Not just who they want to be, but who they really are, right? So come on now. We all need a sense of self-awareness. Jesus had that in spades. And when Jesus was speaking, John the apostle, who was one of his closest disciples in his gospel, often spoke about some of the things that Jesus said about himself. Whenever you look in John chapter 8, Again, in a Jewish context, Jesus started speaking in verse 56. He was talking to a crowd, and the crowd was basically familiar with the story of the patriarch Abraham, who was the Predecessor of all of the Jewish race, and he was basically making reference to how everything got started. Now, the people that Jesus would have been speaking to, much like many of you in here, were familiar with not only Abraham's story, but also Moses' story. How many people are familiar with the story of Moses, right? Okay, remember Moses and the Exodus from Egypt. He was constantly making reference to all of these pictures as to God showing himself who he is and also his authority. And in this instance, It said that Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. Jesus, as we know historically, probably began his ministry at 30 years old, right? And all of a sudden he's saying, like, listen, guys, all of you are, have been waiting for something, and I'm what you've been waiting for, right? Kirk Franklin, back in the day, one of his original hits. Anybody love Kirk Franklin in here? Okay, doesn't really sing, just, you know, sort of talks. But the thing is, is that Kirk, one of his original songs was What You're Looking For, right? I know what you're looking for. And he, Jesus was basically. like I'm what you're looking for right Abraham rejoiced to see my day and they said you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham and Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am before Abraham was I am if we heard that in our context we'd be like what are you talking about Jesus But in their context, they responded this way. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why again did they pick up stones to stone him? Because once again, he was, in their context, blaspheming. He was saying, again, I am. Where does that term come from? Anybody know? It's coming from the Exodus with Moses. Right? Whenever God was coming to deliver the Israelites out of their slavery to the Egyptians, God specifically took Moses and said, go to them and perform these signs, wonders, and miracles showing that God Almighty is with you. And Moses asked the question, who should I say sent me? Who should I say sent me? I can't just go up into the most powerful government known to mankind at the time and just say, hey, I need you to let my people go. He said, who should I say sent me? And he said, say, I am who sent you. I am who I am. What's your name, God? I am who I am. And that word in the Hebrew literally meant the always, the self-existing one, the eternal one, the one who has no beginning or no end the one who has the power to create and speak the world as we know it into existence. That's who God said, Moses said, should say, um, he should say to Pharaoh, this is who sent you. And when Jesus is showing up ministering on the scene, he's saying, don't tell me I haven't seen Abraham. Before Abraham was ever born, I am. I'm the one who you need to look to. I'm the one who's only always been here. And I'm the one who's taken on human flesh to walk amongst you and show my glory to you. But he didn't just stop there. He made himself a little bit more intimate with the people. And he got all cuddly with them. And in John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, talked about the sheep and the shepherds. The shepherd, rather, and the sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now, what kind of crazy talk is that from somebody who's just a man? What kind of crazy talk is that from somebody who's just a prophet? He didn't say, I'm pointing the way to eternal life. He said, I give them eternal life. I am the one who is the, the author of life, and I'm the one who brings them into life. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Then he says this in verse 30, very powerful. I and the Father are one. I and the Father, one person. You hear that? He said, make no mistake about it, you're looking for God Almighty, but I'm telling you, I and the Father are one. You're looking for God, you've seen Him now, is what Jesus was unapologetically still i'm saying and so once again as was tradition the jews picked up stones again to stone him you see a common theme here jesus is making self-aware claims about himself and then people want to stone him why not because of what he's done but because of who he's saying that he is This is important because his identity matters. You cannot have proper relationship with God unless you honor his son and relate to him as God. Jesus answered them, "'Is it not written in your law, "'I said you are gods,' which means ruler, little g's? "'If he called them gods, little g's, "'rulers to whom the word of God came "'and scripture cannot be broken, "'do you say of him whom the Father consecrated "'and sent into the world?' you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, right? He said, if I'm not doing what the works of my father, then do not believe me. Jesus is saying, I'm making claims, but I'm also backing up my claims. I'm backing up my claims by what I do. For any of you who've ever played basketball in here, you're familiar with trash talking. Anybody familiar with trash talking Yeah, Was anybody a trash talker? Okay? It's sort of like, uh, again, the trash talking on the court was always people talking about what they wanted to do. And then you take the ball from them and say, go sit down. Because they're dribbling for like 10 minutes and their teammates are like, pass the ball. They do nothing. Jesus, on the other hand, said, do not believe me unless I do what my Father is doing. And so Jesus started to do what his father was doing, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, raise people from the dead. Jesus, in fact, said the most important thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to predict my own death on the cross and three days later predict my resurrection from the dead, showing with power that I am who I said I am. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Finally, in John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, his disciples, we mentioned last week that uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And one of his disciples, who'd been walking with him for years, actually said this to him. He said, Lord, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us, okay? We're, We're with you. We like you, Jesus, We're down with the things that you've done, but show us the Father and that'll be good with us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can any of us say that? Okay, with great humility, we all say, No, okay, no one can look at our lives and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus, on the other hand, with great confidence said, I and the Father are one. It wasn't just Jesus' claim to the identity of God. It was Jesus' claims to godly power. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. It was one of Jesus' healing moments uh, when he was dealing with the paralytic. And it said, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. They, They brought him to Jesus to heal him. And Jesus starts off talking about your sins are forgiven. Would anybody be like, well, Jesus, I think you missed the point. I want to walk. <laughs> okay. And he said he said I got you. <laughs> I got you, but let me deal with the real issue first. Your sins are forgiven. And in the midst of all of that the people once again got offended. Jesus was good at that. <clears throat> and he so, um, some of them the scribes in this instance were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Once again a common theme throughout scripture you got to be able to recognize these repeated themes, right? Sort of like if you're going to take a test, if you hear your professor say the same thing over over and over and over and over and over again, it will probably be on the exam, right? Well, this theme keeps coming up. Blasphemer, 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 blasphemer. And Jesus is constantly like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say? So Jesus was basically saying, hey, listen, once again, guys, unless I do the miraculous, unless I prove that I am who I said I am, don't believe me. Now pick up your mat and go home. And he's like, okay. And he did it, proving that once again Jesus had the authority of a divine being, the only divine being. Jesus' signs, wonders, and miracles. Jesus' resurrection. Jesus constantly spoke metaphorically about his death and resurrection. In John 2.19, Jesus said to the people, destroy this temple, talking about his body, and, three days, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, he did that after his crucifixion. He did that after his sacrificial death on the cross. And in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, he said he appeared to his disciples. And when he appeared to them, he spoke very clearly about the meaning of his resurrection. He's saying, because I'm resurrected, I'm going to give you the meaning of it. He said, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they did something. They... They worshipped him, right? That's the only response that they could have. They saw him as the resurrection. They clearly saw him crucified. They clearly saw him whipped, beaten, scorched. They saw a stake driven through his heart, so it punctured his heart. They saw all of that. They saw him buried, put in a tomb, and then three days later, resurrected from the dead. So when they saw him again after those three days, they worshipped him. But not all of them. Some doubted it, said. Some doubted and Jesus came and said to them, all authority, not some of it, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You hear what he's saying there? He's not just talking like out of the side of his mouth. He's saying, I'm in charge of it all. It all belongs to me. You hear the claim he's making? All authority, all rulership in heaven and on earth Connect that back to the Son of Man who would be given all authority over the nations. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore now and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So he's basically claiming two things in this. He's claiming, number one, omnipotence. And he's claiming omnipresence. Omnipresence. You see that? Omnipotence and omnipresence, which is only relegated to God, who can be with us at all places, at all times, no matter who we are. You see, he's making this claim about himself. And here's the clear point that we need to understand. Jesus, once again, staunchly monotheistic, was receiving worship. When we look in the book of Acts even at people who were following Jesus like the apostle Peter many um, the, many times went into a gentile audience who weren't familiar with God or the law of God and we see that when the people heard the message of the gospel like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 they wanted to worship the messenger they wanted to worship Peter who was bringing the message of God and the gospel but what Peter would do is he would say no stop get up i'm just a man I 'm just a man, Jesus, on the other hand, received the worship, and not only did he receive it, but he accentuated it and said, "You are now understanding just a little bit of who I am i 'm going to open up it up to you even more now. He received the worship of the people after his resurrection. Now history tells us that <coughs> excuse me, this wasn 't just relegated to his disciples, but it went far beyond that and it had great implications for us. There was a man named Peter Kreef who said this, why did thousands, why did thousands suffer torture and death for this lie if they knew it was a lie? What force sent Christians to the lion's den? We know in Christian history that there was great persecution against the Christians in the Roman Empire, and it exists even in our modern context throughout the world today. But what force sent Christians to the lion's den with hymns on their lips? What lie ever transformed the world like that? What lie ever transformed the world like that? St. Thomas Aquinas, he was um, many times called the dumb ox. Anybody ever heard of Thomas Aquinas? Okay, the dumb ox, they called him dumb because he was so quiet. He he was a thinker, right? He kept quiet. Many of us, I feel like that's convicting to me. I need to to talk less. Anyway, he said, if the incarnation, if the incarnation did not really happen, then an even more unbelievable miracle happened. The conversion of the world by the biggest lie in history and the moral transformation of lives into unselfishness, detachment from worldly pleasures and radically new heights of holiness by a mere myth. By a mere myth. Many of us have tried to live unselfish lives in and of ourselves (laughs) prior to submitting to Jesus. How'd that go? Anybody in here? You want to tell us how that went? Didn't work so well for me. Why? Because we're self-preservationists by nature, are we not? But the gospel, which actually brings the God of heaven and earth through the Father, Son, and then the Holy Spirit who comes and makes a home in us and recreates us according to the revelation of who the Son is, gives us the ability to do it. But then, if that's true, that he is the Son of God, if it's true that Jesus really is God, we have to ask our quest- the question, what about us? Or more specifically, what about you? What do you say about Jesus? Is he merely a good teacher, a prophet, or a wise man? Or is he more than that? One of my favorite atheists from history was C.S. Lewis. You hear me mention him a lot, but I love what he said in Mere Christianity. If you've not read Mere Christianity yet, I would encourage everyone to read Mere Christianity. Uh, Can I just get a show of hands? Has anyone ever heard of Mere Christianity? Oh, okay. Okay, here's that next question. Has anyone ever read Mere Christianity? Oh, wow, that's impressive. Okay, that's great. I'm impressed. Okay, well, here's one of my favorite quotes from Mere Christianity. What he's saying about Jesus. Formerly not a believer, then became a believer. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would, be, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level "'with the man who says he is a poached egg, "'or else he would be the devil of hell. "'You must make your choice. "'Either this man was and is the Son of God, "'or else a madman or something worse. "'You can shut him up for a fool, "'you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, "'or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. "'But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense "'about his being a great human teacher.' He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Many people have heard that argument before. Lord, lunatic, or liar, right? Jesus didn't leave it open for us to say he's just a good moral teacher. Jesus didn't leave it open for us to say that he was just a prophet. Jesus made it very clear that who he was saying was that he's God. And he said, don't believe me unless I do exactly what God would do. And only God can do. And Jesus backed it up by his life's and claims. What that means for us is that, in the midst of all of our, um, in the midst of all of our searching and in all of our following of Jesus and all of our testifying about who Jesus is, it's not enough that we're calling people to faith and repentance in just another good guru. It's not enough that we're calling people to faith and repentance in a good teacher or somebody who will be another one of the books on the self-help aisle. We're actually calling them to the worship of God in the flesh. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus who is God. And we'll end with this scripture and be done. Paul the Apostle said this, for the grace of God has appeared. (laughs) Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You hear that? He said, our great, not just Savior, but our great God and Savior. It's not, it's, it's not one or the other, it's both. He's our Savior, but he's God. <laughs> our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Because of his own testimony about himself, Jesus is either God or a fraud. There is no logical middle ground. Jesus demonstrated his deity through prophecy, teaching, and the resurrection, and now he calls us to follow him as such. On the web, there will be many more notes. Just the books, books, volumes volumes that speak about the deity of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, who he is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want to go back to the web later this week, we'll have some more on there for you. As you go into your discussion groups, there'll be, this will be the part of the discussion this week. But let us not say that we can worship him as anything less than God in the flesh. God in the flesh who came, humbled himself to save Amen? Amen. All right, worship team, come on up. Thank you for your patience today.